Awesome. James 2 verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one, to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the difficult things that it, it teaches us. And Holy Spirit, we pray on this day where we remember the work that you did in the birth of the church, pouring out your spirit to start a movement that will never be stopped. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be with us, that you would stir our hearts and teach us, and that your word would come alive in our lives again, we pray. Amen. As a teenager, I loved to skate. I mean, as in on a, a skateboard. But I never got very good at it. To be good at skating requires a level of commitment, fearless commitment that I could never quite master. So if you go to a skate park, they have what they call the half pipe. You know what I'm talking about? Where up and down you, you skate back and forth. And if you want to enjoy a half pipe, you have to drop into the half pipe from the top. So you stand, uh, there's a six or eight foot drop. It's literally perpendicular with the ground. You stand on the edge with your foot on the tail, the board and your front foot hanging, looming over this precipice. And you have to commit. You've got to commit. You have to put weight on the front foot. Those, those wheels have to hit the half pipe firmly. If you don't commit, you, the board's just going to slide out from underneath you and you're going to hurt yourself as I did many times. I have a fear of heights, so skating was not really a, a great fit for me. In life, there are things that you can do partially and some that you have to do completely or not at all. In the morning, you can eat a partial breakfast. You can wolf down half a slice of toast, grab your cup of coffee, run out the house and say, I ate breakfast. You can ask your kids to clean their bedroom. And an hour later, you come in and they have done some cleaning. Clothes may be hidden under the, the bed. The bookshelf is all out of order and toys have been thrown indiscriminately into the cupboards. But in a sense, they cleaned. You can do some things partially, but other things like dropping into a half pipe or like getting married, you have to do all or nothing. What about obedience to God's word? Many would say that it goes in the partial category. All or nothing doesn't seem to fit. We're tempted daily, right? And we succumb to that temptation. We try to obey, but there's partial success. And take James's letter, for example. 
He says, and we, we saw this a couple weeks ago, that we are deceived about our religion if we don't bridle our tongues. But then in chapter 3, he'll claim that we all stumble in trying to bridle the tongue, tongue that nobody is perfect. And the Christian life progresses slow in holiness. It's incomplete. It's pretty much always leaving us disappointed with ourselves. But here in this passage in James 2, we're forced to put obedience, in a sense, into the all-or-nothing category. This passage is a part of an extended section on obedience to God's Word. So you remember a while back we looked at how we are to obey. We're to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. And then James got specific in applying that obedience to the realm of our, our mouths and our hands and our hearts, how we speak to one another, how we treat one another with compassion and care, the purity of our walk in the world before God. And last week we saw James introduce the topic of favoritism, that in the church they were favoring the rich over the poor in the assembly and so dishonoring the poor man. Now James hasn't left that issue behind, but in our passage he's expanding the conversation to talk about the stakes. What is at stake in our obedience? For James, favoritism is a prime example of a faith that is half-hearted before God. And, and in a letter where James wants us to see clearly the nature of true and saving faith, we see today in our obedience that true faith goes all in. And we're going to see it in three different ways. Number one, faith goes all in. It's all or nothing. It goes all in with love. So see how James here raises the stakes on the issue of favoritism in verses 8 and 9 again. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So James, he, he did it in chapter 1, verse 25. He comes back now again to the topic of the law, and you squirm in your seats a little bit as you hear words like that. You are convicted of sin, convicted as transgressors before the law. You come to the passage and you say, but we, we don't live under the law, right? We live under grace, don't we? Is, is James in this passage bringing us back under condemnation? No, that's not the case. And we'll see in verses 12 and 13 when he speaks about this law, the law of liberty, that that's not the case. We do live under grace. We live in the freedom of God's grace. But that grace sets us free to live completely unto our King. We are saved to serve Him. That's James's point in this passage. In, in Exodus, in, in the people of Israel, we have again a model where God rescues the people from slavery in Egypt. But what does He rescue them to? It's to service, to belonging, to being called His holy, set-apart people, His own possession among the nations. When God called Moses and He sent Moses to the people of Israel, He sent, them, he sent him with a message. Exodus 3 verse 12, God says, I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So we see an important order for us as well. He redeems them. He saves them. 
He brings them out of Egypt. But then he brings them to a place where the law is revealed. And so those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb become the kingdom of priests unto God. Peter picks up on this same theme in 1 Peter chapter 2. He applies it to the church in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. You are, church, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have been removed from darkness and taken into light. And, and in the light, your desire is to live all in for the glory of Christ. This is important what James is teaching here. It's an important foundation for the rest of this chapter. We need to understand this about obedience, this order. In the Bible, obedience is always responsive to grace. It's not meritorious of grace. We don't obey in order to merit grace. We obey because of the grace that has been shown to us. So when James would read later on, Paul say in Romans 6.14, you are not under law but under grace, James would exclaim a hearty and a loud amen to that. We are not under the law, not in terms of the, our, our covering before God, our, our forgiveness, our deliverance from condemnation. It's not... We're not under the law for that. We're under the covering of Christ's shed blood, His death on the cross, His righteousness before God alone. But then we must understand this in order to live the Christian life. The law tells those who are sheltered by the blood of Christ how to live for their King. For their King. That's why James here, I believe, calls it the royal law. The royal law. It's the law of our King. The law belonging to Him. The King who loves us with a perfect love. And, and so we love Him. And we live in His kingdom. And desire to obey Him. Now King came. And he quoted scripture. And he explained how we are to live with one another. When he said, love your neighbors as yourself. James is quoting Jesus here. Love your neighbor as yourself. You've probably heard a lot about what it means to love as yourself. I just want to share this quote by Alec Matia that I, I, I found quite helpful, quite insightful here. What does it mean to love like we love ourselves? He says, Never it is to be hoped with an emotional thrill. Rarely, as a matter of fact, with much sense of satisfaction. Mostly with pretty wholesale disapproval, often with complete loathing, but always with concern, care, and attention. He's talking about how we love ourselves. When we catch sight of our faces in the mirror first thing in the morning, the word, ugh, comes spontaneously to the lips. Yet at once we take that revolting face to the bathroom. We wash it and tend it and make it as presentable as nature will allow. And so it goes on through the day. Loving ourselves means providing loving care and attention. This is the model on which we are to base our relationships to all to whom we owe neighborly duty. Then he says this, Everything conspires today to define love primarily in emotional terms. Scripturally, love is to be defined in caring terms. For, those, for the love that is owed to our neighbor is the love we expend on ourselves. Saying love is care. It's focus, it's attention. It is, for James, 
action. Love is action. Not what people often make it in the world. How you feel and, and connected only to emotions. James says, if you fulfill the royal law, that law, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So love and law go hand in hand. You pick up the coin. On the one side is love. On the other side is righteousness. Love and righteousness go hand in hand. Now love does include our emotions. It does include our feelings, but it's got to be far more than that. Love is action. You go to a wedding, and the couple stand before one another, and they share their, their vows, and you hear them speak. What do you hear? It's not how they feel about one another, right? It's action. You hear action. Language of taking and having and holding, clinging, forsaking all others, comforting, honoring, keeping, being faithful to the end. That's what we declare at our, at our weddings. We don't like to speak today about duty and obligation, but James would have us not shy away from that word. He's saying we have a duty to our king, and that duty is to love one another. That is true that there is little value in, in begrudging service. We don't begrudge that duty or that service to the king. But the, the opposite is also true. We don't sit around waiting. And this is how many people live with others in the world. Sit around waiting for feelings to move us, for emotions to move us. No, love means on the ground being committed to our king and doing the things sometimes that we don't want to do because we know that it's right. Love and righteousness go hand in hand. Love means forgiving others when you would rather sit and stew. Love means showing concern and sacrifice when you know that you have your own troubles to deal with, quite frankly. Love means speaking the truth to somebody when you'd rather just bury your head in the sand. Love means showing mercy to the poor and the lost and turning the cheek in a dog-eat-dog world. And love means, in the context of favoritism, that we don't get to be selective about who we see as our neighbor, about who we choose to love. It's James's point. Favoritism is in direct opposition to the royal law. Jesus said the same thing. In Luke 10, this lawyer comes to Jesus. And he comes and it says to put Jesus to the test. He asks, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you shall love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And how does he respond, this lawyer? Luke says in order to justify himself, he says, and who? Who is my neighbor? If I can just limit that list down, whittle it down, then I know I can obey this command. And God, Jesus flips the lawyer's question on, his, on its head Upside down, he tells the parable of the good Samaritan, right? And the Samaritan comes across the Jew, beaten up, near death in the street, and he helps him. Jesus is saying, your neighbor is the person you come across, even the person you would consider to be your enemy. There's no escape here. There's no one that you meet who you don't do owe that, that devotion of love to. Church, how are we doing with this? How are we doing even in our own church? Are there people 
in the world, people at work, people in the church that you find it difficult to love. It's been a a difficult couple of years. You speak to everybody and what's happened over the last year or so, especially in KZN, I think people are feeling fatigued and tired. We're feeling beaten down and battered and bruised. You see your own life and how your own troubles are mounting. But we live for the glory of Christ. And in a world where it is right now, isn't it a dog-eat-dog world out there? What we need is to love. We need to love the people we see. We need to love one another. Church, we need to love one another. I want to see what God could do through a revival of love in this church. What he could do through a season where we choose to sacrifice for the good of those around us. Where we choose to pour out our lives. Ernest Gordon wrote a book recounting the experience that he lived out in a Japanese concentration camp for Allied soldiers during World War II. It's a book uh, through the Valley of the Kwai. In 1942, that camp that he was in was a place of horrors, a place of filth, grueling labor, brutal treatment, not enough food. And it created a law, these conditions. It created a law that pervaded that camp, the law of every man for himself, A little bit like our society right now. Well, by 1943, Christmas Day, everything had changed in that camp. Things were clean. The conditions had improved. And on Christmas Day, 2,000 men, Allied and Japanese, were at worship to the Lord. What had happened? What had happened in the space of a year? He tells the story. It began when a big and burly man, a Scotsman named Angus, fell down dead. To everyone's surprise, they found out he had died of starvation and exhaustion. See, there had been another man in the camp who had gotten sick. And that man had been pretty much given up for dead. But Angus had begun to care for him. When that man's blanket had been stolen, Angus gave him his own blanket. And he gave him the majority of his own rations, his own food. So as that man began to slowly recover, Angus collapsed and died. And that was a catalyst that God used in that camp. Everything began to change. They knew he was a Christian. And the royal law lived out, did a work. James is calling the church to the same. Let the royal law do a work among us as a people. May we be that city on a hill. May we shine in Hillcrest as we, as we obey more and more. Number two. Faith goes all in with the law. All in with the law. By making a connection between partiality and the royal law, James is making a point here that there's no small matter under the law. There's no little thing. In verse 9 he said, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. There is a sinful tendency in all of us to play favorites even with the laws of God. We have those laws that we obey well and we highlight those as the important ones while ignoring others. We saw it in the the Gospels and the arrest and the trial of Jesus Christ in, in Annas and Caiaphas, didn't we? They were zealous to put Jesus to death. 
And outwardly, this is how they presented themselves as protectors of the law. The third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So they came and they accused Christ of blasphemy, of breaking the command, but they didn't seem to care about two other commands. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not murder. They broke both without care, all the while seeming to be the champions of God's law. The truth is they were using the law for their own ends, weren't they? They weren't faithful to the law because they were faithful to the Father who had spoken it. It was limited obedience for their own ends. So James is saying in this passage, obedience to one law doesn't excuse you, to, uh, excuse you from obeying another law. See how he develops his argument here in verse 10 and 11. He says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. I really wrestled with this this week. Why did James use the example of these two commandments, murder and committing adultery? What is James trying to say? And there's a whole lot of debate among scholars here. I think, I believe, honestly, that James's point is quite simple. He's presenting a hypothetical situation here. Let me try to explain it. Imagine it this way. There's a man on trial. He's on trial for murder. And he takes the stand. He says to the judge, Your Honor, I did kill that man. I did kill that person. But I'm not guilty. And incredulous, the judge looks at him and says, Why? And he says, Because there's never been a day in my life where I cheated on my wife. Right, it doesn't, that would never be your argument in court, would it? If you commit murder, you're a murderer, you're a lawbreaker, you're going to jail. So now in context, see it here in the context of favoritism. Let's say you never murder anyone, you never commit adultery, but you do show favoritism. Maybe you harbor racism a little bit in your heart. You discriminate. There's a, a group of people you don't like because they're not like you or somebody in the church you don't like. You're harboring favoritism. James says you fail in one point. You fail in all of it. You're guilty of it all. You're a law breaker in the sight of God. There's no dividing is the point. There's no choosing which laws I'm going to follow. There's no small matters. I don't get to assign the weight I want to to specific Laws. In this sense, James is saying obedience is all or nothing. You go for a checkup, you see a doctor, a full physical exam, and he looks at your heart and he says, Wow, your, your heart is, is beating like a man 20 years your, your younger. And he checks your lungs and he says, Amazing, your lungs are at 100% efficiency. And then he looks at your kidneys and he says, Oof, your kidneys are functioning at 15%. All right, the doctors are not going to say good enough and send you on your way. You've got kidney failure and you need immediate attention. All right, good enough is the world's system. That's how the world looks as, at the commands of God. I've, I've done enough. I'm generally a good person. I'm all right with God. It's a complete failure to understand the point of the law. It's not a grading curve. It's a reflection, the law. Every law is a reflection of the character of God and everyone important. Douglas Moon, in his commentary, says this. Critical to James' argument here is that the commandment is not just a text 
but somebody who is speaking. That's why James says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. How has God revealed Himself to us? It's through His Word, through His law. Moses makes this point in Deuteronomy chapter 4 when he says, When God made the covenant with Israel, right? He did not reveal Himself in a form, something visible, something physical that they could then say, This is what God is like. It's why they were commanded not to make a graven image of the Lord. How did God reveal Himself? He spoke. He spoke to them, Deuteronomy 4, 12 to 13. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. James is, I mean, Moses is saying there, the law of God reveals the nature, the character of God. So for you to come to the law and downplay One of the commands to say, I don't care that much about that one. I'll follow some, but not all. What you're saying is there's an aspect of who God is, an aspect of God's character that doesn't matter to you. It's an enthroning of self. I'll obey the the laws that I judge to be sound or I judge to be worthy of my attention. Dan Doriani says this, if we pick and choose among the commands, we never really obey God himself. If we follow only the laws we like, if we obey only laws that we find agreeable, we make ourselves the final arbiter of truth. In effect, we consult with God and possibly gain valuable pointers from him, but we are still masters of our own lives. In this way, obedience is all or nothing. We submit to God totally or not at all. Is Christ your king? Do you come to the word of God, not just to find pointers, not just to find a little morality, how to to live your life and get on with it? Do you come and submit to him as king? Why do we not lie? Is it because of the relational fallout that lying brings? No, it's, well, it is that, but primarily it's because God is a God of truth. And we love that He's a God of truth, and that's why we tell the truth. Why do we not covet? It's because God is everything that we need. And to covet is dishonoring to Him as God. And why should we not show favoritism? It's because God is the one who has made every man in His image. He is the one who assigns significance and worth through that action. And we don't live by the world's system of external appearance. We go all in with God's law. Finally, number three, faith goes all in with mercy. Faith goes all in with mercy. Elizabeth Elliot wrote a, a book called A Chance to Die. And she tells the story of the celebrated missionary to India, Amy Carmichael, in that book. She excludes journal entries from, uh, or entries from Carmichael's journals. And one entry speaks of a decisive moment in Amy's life, in particular relating to her call. One Sunday in Belfast, Amy and her family were returning home from church. This is when they were kids. They saw an old woman uh, walking down the street, lugging a, a heavy bundle. And Amy and her brothers turn around. This woman is a, a poor woman. 
They take the bundle from her and they help her along in the street. Now everybody is streaming out of church. And Amy speaks about how this actually was a very embarrassing moment for her. She writes this in one of her journal entries. This meant facing all the respectable people who were, like ourselves, on their way home. It was a horrid moment. We were only two boys and a girl and not at all exalted Christians. We hated doing it. Crimson all over, at least we felt crimson, soul and body of us. We plodded on, a wet wind blowing us about and blowing to the rags of that poor old woman till she seemed like a bundle of feathers and we unhappily mixed up with them. She says, as they continued walking, they walked past this ornate Victorian fountain with beautiful stonework and she says a a verse from 1 Corinthians 3 flashed into her mind where she writes, puts it this way, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be declared by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is, if any man's work abide. It says, as she's, she said, as she walked past the fountain, that verse flashed into her mind to the point where she looked around to see who had spoken to her. And when she turned around, she saw only the, the fountain, the muddy street, the people with their politely su- surprised faces. And so the children plodded on with their, that lady, their, their bundle of feathers. But something happened in Amy Carmichael's life that day. Something changed forever, the values of her life. She had a knowledge that day that there is one person she will stand before one day to give an account of her works. The things that she would do in life would be tested by fire. One judge before whom all must stand and he will judge our deeds. Amy's life from then on took a flavor, uh, all in with mercy. She knew that she didn't want to build the rest of her life on, on straw. She wanted to be ready for that day, that testing by fire. And it was the opinion of her king that outweighed for the rest of her life the opinions of people in the world. And they outweighed that day the opinions of the respectable people of Belfast. And so the last words that James speaks here in this passage should land on us. He says to us, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. James's voice here joins many others in the New Testament, declaring that there is going to be a day where we will stand before God and our words, our works, Christian, our words and our works will be tested. They will be revealed. Paul says in Romans 14, 10 and 12, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us will, ha- will give an account of himself to God. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. About mercy, Christ said in Matthew 5.7, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. And then he told in, uh, in uh, the, the flip side to that, the parable of the forgiving servant, the unforgiving servant. You know that servant who who owes his master an enormous amount of money, say 10 million rand. He can't afford to pay, and his master calls him in and says, you need to pay before me or you're going to be in trouble. And he pleads before him. He's saying, I can't. 
I can never pay that back. And his master forgives him, forgives the debt, lets him go free. That man, as he leaves, what does he do? He walks into the streets and another man comes past him, a man who owes him, say, a thousand rand. And he drags him to court to pay him back, to, to be paid back. The master finds out, he calls him in and he rebukes him, saying, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And he was thrown into prison until that debt could be repaid. The problem was his heart revealed that the mercy he had received from his master had not made an impact, had it? If it had made an impact on his heart, he would have been merciful to those around him. As Christians, we have to be shaped by mercy because we love the mercy of God. There is no room. There is no room for unforgiveness. The unforgiveness that says, you don't know what they did to me. The unforgiveness that says, you don't know my story. The unforgiveness that, that justifies bitterness. These verses make us uncomfortable, don't they? James talking about the law and being judged by the law and our works and our our deeds and our words. Maybe you read this and you say, where is grace in all of this? There is a a level of mystery to this, I believe. This, This reality that we will face judgment one day. On the one hand, we know with all our hearts that our eternal destinies are determined not by our works. We will stand before God, and it's Christ's righteousness that will be the foundation of our standing. We will stand justified absolutely, perfectly, and finally in His righteousness. But there will also be an assessment of who we are. Our words will be tested. Our motivations revealed, and the things that we built in this life will be tested by fire. Where is the grace in this? There is one final statement here. I believe this is an exclamation from James. As he, even as he's saying this, that God's grace is, is still in this. He says here, at the end, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So mercy has the final word. It gets the last laugh because you know yourself, don't you? You know your own heart and the mercy that you show to others is flawed. It's weak. It's incomplete. God's mercy has been shown to us. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And so if God's mercy has the final word in our lives, surely it should have the final word in the way that we treat one another. Church, this is a season of difficulty in the life of the church. But It is a season where we need to Cling to the mercy of God and be merciful to one another and love one another. Let's pray. Lord, we, we do thank you, Father, for your mercy shown towards us. Christ, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you for the redemption of our lives. And we thank you that we can stand before you knowing that 
that 100% our God is for us because of what you have done. We thank you for your love that will never pass away. Your love that keeps us and holds us, that shapes our lives. And we pray today. We pray for your love to descend upon our hearts. We pray for eyes to see one another. Eyes of love. We pray for the desire to treat one another in obedience to the royal law. Help us to love one another as we love ourselves. Help us to love those in the world, in our workplaces, those we come across, the poor and the needy. Help us to love those who have hurt us. Help us to forgive. Lord, I pray through your spirit that you would do a work in your church and that that work would resound to your glory in our world. Amen.